1: Welcome to another edition of the Pound for Pound podcast Here on the Fight Game Media Network This is your host, the original great Rob Silva And today, we will talk about Mercita Hesta's hard-fought victory over Jojo Diaz This past Saturday night A very extended question and answer session And... My historical overview of my fourth greatest fighter Of the last 45 years And that is a man who died a little bit over a year ago The incomparable, marvelous Marvin Hagler But before we begin on the topic at hand The topics at hand I want to quickly plug the patreon podcast that i do on the fight game media network patreon page the link is in the description of the podcast for five dollars a month you get to hear not only my entire 10 part series on the greatest upsets in boxing history you also get to hear gary Gonzalez. And myself, Garrett, being the head of the Fight Game Media Network. He and I did a four-part series on the controversial Hulu docuseries that occurred last year on Hulu, Mike Tyson starring Trayvon Rhodes. Uh, We, in the the four-part series, we recapped all eight episodes, two at a time. Um, I juxtaposed historical facts with what? The show was presenting to the listeners And we talked about the acting, the directing And what actually happened in real life Versus what they portrayed on the screen Uh, Also, you have Gary Gonzalez and Duan Another member of the Fight Game Media Network Long time friend of both of Gary and I Uh, They did a historical overview and review of the first eight movies from the Rocky franchise, the six Rocky movies, Rocky, Rocky two, Rocky three, Rocky four, Rocky five, Rocky Balboa, Creed one and Creed two. And they did an extensive rundown of each episode. What was going on in the world at the time, beautifully done. You are not going to hear a better review anywhere other than these two when it comes to the first eight episodes And by the way As far as the Creed 3 review There are two reviews that I Was a part of that Are out there right now On the Fight Game Media Network Last week's Pound for Pound Podcast I gave a 15 minute rundown of of What I felt the movie Was about And You can hear it. You can hear my thoughts. And on the Fight Game podcast, a different uh, podcast feed that Gary Gonzalez and John LaRocca host. And by the way, John LaRocca, one of the great members of the Fight Game media family. uh, A segment, an hour-long segment of that podcast was Gary and I. Breaking down Creed Three even further than what I did on last week's episode here on the Pound for Pound podcast. Not only do you get that on the Patreon feed, but you get my new series. Part one is out. Part two will be out any moment. The Life and Times of Muhammad Ali, in which I review the 10 greatest and most important fights in Muhammad Ali's career. I give a historical rundown of what was going on at the time, what was going on in Ali's life, what was going on in America, what was going on in the world, and we do a watch-along of each fight, and I do a retroactive retroactive play-by-play of the entire fight that I'll be talking about in that episode. Um, Episode one was the Phantom Punch fight. It's already out on the Patreon page. Episode two will be his November 1965 fight versus Floyd Patterson. That's already been recorded and it should be released any moment. And then I will continue for the next eight months doing the most important fights in the history of Muhammad Ali's storied career. Footage provided to me and provided to you guys. We'd watch along on the YouTube channel Vintage Boxing. Which is run by my buddy UK A loyal listener and great, great boxing historian in his own own right My brother Martin has a YouTube channel, Vintage Boxing And that's the footage we use, pristine footage that we watch along You guys can watch along while I recreate the play-by-play in my own words Now, on to Saturday night's uh, fight between... Mercita Hesta and Jojo Diaz. The fight was for the super lightweight. Neither of these guys are super lightweights. They're they're too small for super lightweight. These guys should be fighting at lightweight. I give all the credit in the world to Mercita Hesta. He's thirty-five years old. This is the twentieth year that he's been boxing. He began his career in October of 2003, a week after his sixteenth birthday in the Philippines. He's fought 20 years and he's fought a bevy of lightweight contenders and he's held his own. I mean, he gave Jorge Linares some trouble. He has had a solid career and this was a very good fight. Him versus Jojo Diaz. Jojo Diaz coming off two consecutive losses. Uh, William Cepeda and Devin Haney where he gave it his all, but they outboxed him. And in this fight. It was a very good fight. It was an excellent fight. A lot of give and take. Uh, Mercito uh, Hesta, when he was outside leading with his jab, was controlling the fight. But he would always go up against the ropes, and Diaz would bang the body, and there would be some ferocious exchanges in which Diaz, more times than not, got the better of it. This was a very tough fight to score. Hester won by split decision. There were several rounds that could have gone either way. And because of that, you had crazy scores. I would think... Now, my scorecard was 95-95. And this is how I scored it. I had the first four rounds even. And then uh, I, I I gave... I had the first... After four rounds, I had it dead even. And then from rounds five through eight, I had... Let me make sure I got this right. I had... Five through five, six, seven, eight, uh, uh, the three of the next four rounds I gave to Hester because he was controlling the action with the jab from outside. And even when Diaz forced him up against the ropes, Hester would fight back and then get off the ropes and control with his jab from the outside. Round nine and ten, you saw Diaz knew he was in trouble. His corner told him that he had to step it up, and he did. And rounds nine and ten were some furious exchanges, and I gave the edge Diaz because. Hester was fighting his fight. I had it a draw, 95-95. I can't argue if you give either man the fight. One judge gave Diaz seven rounds. One judge gave Hester nine rounds, and another judge gave Hester eight rounds. The scores were all over the place. Now, I understand there were several rounds that could have gone either way, but how do you sit there and judge a fight and give every round that could have gone either way to the same fighter? I don't know. I'm not a judge. But I'm not gonna argue that the right man didn't win. The right the the right man, if you thought Hester won, if you had if you put a gun to my head and said, look, you can't score this a draw, give it to somebody, I'd give it to Hester because I thought he was much more effective from the outside. And it was you know, people uh criticize him for going up against the ropes in exchange, and the man is gonna be thirty six years old in seven months. He's fought 20 years. And for a 35, going on 36-year-old fighter who's fought 20 years, in the history of boxing, not too many guys with that long of a career have fought to this type of level at the age of 35, going on 36. Hester continues to be a tough opponent for anybody. And um, Oscar De La Hoya, Huge fan of Hester. He's his promoter. He's looking to put Hester into more fights against other lightweights. Hester will fight anybody. He was supposed to, he was supposed to fight Ryan Garcia in January, but Garcia made a wise choice and canceled that fight, and is going to concentrate on Tank Davis for the April twenty second fight. Um, I think Hester has deserved an opportunity to fight Garcia, win or lose. After Garcia's fight with Tank Davis Now I we'll would love to see that Hester is an exciting fighter He's a nice boxer puncher He's not a huge puncher But he throws combinations And 35 going on 36 He's the type of guy That if you're an up and coming lightweight contender And I think Oscar was talking about putting him in the ring With Floyd Schofield Floyd Schofield one of Oscar's brightest Young talent out there Young, uh, young talented fighters out there Young prospects a great test for Schofield would be Mercito Hesta Because Schofield has beaten a bunch of bums A bunch of washed up bums Schofield has all the talent in the world If he beats Hester, he proves to me that he's the real deal Now, on to my Q&A session We have several questions this week on the podcast This is going to be an extended Q&A session first I failed to answer this question last week A great friend of mine Living out in the UK Italian brother Luigi Asked my opinion of Roberto Duran's three greatest performances of his career My opinion his three greatest performances were His title winning victory over Ken Buchanan His comeback victory over Davey Moore June of 1983, a fight that my father took me when I was 15 years old to see, and it was the loudest I ever heard in Madison Square Garden, when Duran totally uh, dominated and knocked out Davey Moore in the ninth round of a, talk about an incredible, incredible comeback, one of the greatest comebacks in boxing history, because after the NoMoss fight in November of 1980, Duran was even considered dead in his own homeland of Panama. Right, um, there was threats of him being killed, and yet he came all the way back, and he beat a much younger, heavily favored Davy Moore to put a stamp on his legacy, on Duran's legacy. And his third greatest performance was at the age of thirty-seven, beating the brawler Iran Barkley in an incredible fight, February of nineteen eighty-nine. Duran beat the much younger, heavier hitting Barkley, even knocked Barkley down to win the decision and to win the WBC uh, middleweight championship of the world. All three of his greatest performances were title winning victories. He beat Ken Buchanan in 1972 to become the lineal lightweight champion of the world. He beat Davey Moore in June of 1983 to become the WBA junior middleweight champion of the world and he beat Iran Barkley in February 1989 to become the WBC middleweight champion of the world so those Luigi were in my opinion his three three greatest performances and if I'm not mistaken I believe um, those are your choices as well okay next question is from make sure this. I think my brother skis my young nephew skis my young twitter nephew skis He asked the question. um, We were going back and forth on Twitter about our favorite actors of all time, our top actors of all time. And I told him my nine favorite black actors of all time. And he asked me the question, what do I consider the best role, the best movie, the best performance each of these nine actors Uh. Did perform, in my opinion. And I'm going to add one of his all-time favorite actors, one of the one of his goats, Jamie Foxx. So I'm going to talk, this is going to be a long session, I'm going to talk about these 10 actors and each that I feel was their greatest performance. Let me start with Skees' boy, uh, Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx has had a tremendous career. And Jamie Foxx is on the short list of most talented, Artists in the history of music and comedy and cinema. You can make an argument he's the greatest if you combine stand-up comedy, music, and acting because he has dominated all three fields. He's top tier in all three. As far as what my favorite role And what I thought was his finest performance, I know he won an Oscar for Ray and highly deserved. He bodied the role of Ray. But my favorite role by him was him playing Willie in Any Given Sunday. He bodied that role. And it's funny, you watch that movie that came out in 1999, I believe, and you see what the NFL became. He was and anonymously, his character, was uh, a running quarterback, right? And up until that point, the only real running quarterback you had was Randall Cunningham. Michael Vick wasn't going to get drafted for another two years. And so Will, uh, uh, Jamie's character, Willie, was just this, you know, this never-before-seen thing on, 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 um, in the NFL, And he played that role to the T. He was phenomenal. It was a great movie. Al Pacino was his usual phenomenal self as the head coach of the Miami Sharks. And Lawrence Taylor was in one of the best acting roles ever by a football player. Basically played himself as the aging pass rusher, all-time great defensive player, and his nickname was Apropos the Shark. And Jim Brown was excellent in the small role he had. And the legend himself, Clifton Davis, as the mayor of Miami, was tremendous in that movie. My favorite, and I, in my opinion, Jamie Foxx's finest performance was Any Given Sunday. All right, we're going to be talking a while because I still got nine other actors to talk about. But let me get to, the, to to my list. Courtney B. Vance. Courtney B. Vance. I have never seen Courtney B. Van, B, B. Vance in a bad role. He has been tremendous in everything. Uh, he was great last year in Sixty First Street, a great series that was canceled after they filmed season two, and they're never going to show season two on AMC, which makes no sense to me. But I digress. Um, in my opinion, Courtney Vance's Courtney B. Vance's greatest performance was in the miniseries, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. He bodied Johnny Cochran. He became Johnny Cochran. He, the courtroom scenes, he was phenomenal. The, the, the way he carried himself, he captured the spirit and aura of Johnny Cochran. So, and Courtney Vance, the underrated movie you guys would want to watch, I want to recommend, Love and Action in Chicago. It was an indie flick from early 2000s, I believe. Starring him, Regina King And um George Costanza From um (laughs) um, Michael K. Williams Michael K. Williams Is top 5 If not top 3, maybe even top 2 Television actors of 21st century Rest in peace Michael K. Williams He was supposed to play George Foreman's trainer Doc Brodus In the upcoming George Foreman um Docu movie that's coming out late next month But he died before production Could occur and so another guy On the list I will be Talking about next is Forrest Whitaker Took Michael K. Williams spot After Michael K. Williams died But before we get to Forrest In my opinion Michael K's greatest Performance was in the HBO miniseries The Night Of Where he played This former Golden Gloves Boxer who's in jail for life and he he befriends the Muslim, the Arab Muslim who is in, is on trial for murder, for murdering a white woman that he met and had sex with the first night. And then when he woke up the next morning, she was dead. He, he, Michael K. Williams was tremendous in the guy who ran to prison and made sure nothing happened to the young Muslim. He took care of the boy. And made sure that the boy would be okay Once the boy went on trial And, and John Turturro was phenomenal as the boy's lawyer And got the boy acquitted The night of If you haven't watched it HBO Max Or if you have regular cable HBO On Demand I'd highly recommend you guys watch that movie Forrest Whitaker Who took Michael K. Williams' spot Great transition In the George Foreman movie After Michael K. Williams died Forrest Whitaker, in my opinion, his greatest role was playing Charlie Parker in the Clint Eastwood-directed Bird that came out 35 years ago. Forrest Whitaker, my parents watched the movie, and my father and my mother both said, because my mother would know, because she was married to my father for 34 years, and he was a recovering heroin addict. They both said that Forrest Whitaker captured a heroin addict like no other. They said he was phenomenal. He had the mannerisms and the paranoia of a heroin addict down pat. Forrest Whitaker was phenomenal. I know he won an Oscar for playing Idi Amin. And he was great as Idi Amin. And he's great as Bumpy Johnson in The Godfather Harlem. And great in so many other things. He's had an incredible career. Forrest Whitaker, 40 years of excellence. Black Excellence. Bird in my opinion was his finest performance. Okay, next actor on this list, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright, another great actor who bodies every role and he's had a lot of great roles. But my favorite role by him in a mo- in, in a movie was the, the movie Monster that came out a few years ago in which he plays the father of a young boy. Who is on trial for accessory to murder, and it was a, a armed robbery and murder. He was, and the way Jeffrey Wright portrayed this father, uh, by supporting his son all the way and making sure that that his son would not be left alone, even while his son was in prison. By the way, Nas was excellent. As he played a similar role to Michael K. Williams in The Night Of, Nas played this uh uh the this inmate who was having a who was undergoing a long term sentence, who made sure no one messed with Jeffrey Wright's son in the movie. Jeffrey Wright was phenomenal, Nas was phenomenal, Aesop Rocky as the guy who committed the murder. Was phenomenal John David Washington was phenomenal And Jennifer Hudson was phenomenal As the boy's mother Jeffrey Wright's Jeffrey wife Jeffrey Wright Great actor He was great in Boardwalk Empire As Michael K. Williams' rival um, Jeffrey Wright A phenomenal actor Continues to put out great work In a long career Which began the first time I saw him When he played Basquiat Basquiat, I have you say my brother's name in the 1996 biopic movie of that legendary New York City artist. NFL Sunday Ticket
0: is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off.
1: Next up on my list is Don Cheadle And Don Cheadle has had one of the great careers In the history of Hollywood Period, end of story I've never The only movie I didn't like that he was in Was that Space Jam movie That came out with uh, LeBron James A couple years back But that was a kiddie movie You know He was playing the caricature of an evil evil dude. So he he was the modern day Danny DeVito from the first Space Jam. You know, you can't take that role seriously. that was a kitty movie, all right? It was it was what it was. It was it was for the children. It was for the kids. But as far as everything else, he's been phenomenal. And my favorite role by Don Cheadle, it was the first time I ever saw an actor out act Denzel in a Denzel starred movie. And that was Devil in a Blue Dress, the movie adapted from my favorite author of all time, Walter Mosley. Don Cheadle played Mouse, and even though he maybe he might be on the scene might have ten to fifteen minutes of screen time in that movie, he was phenomenal. He bodied that role. So that's in my opinion, Don Cheadle's all time great, greatest performance. Playing Mouse in Devil in a Blue Dress. And great segue, because who was his, Who was the star of that movie? Denzel Washington. What is my favorite performance by Denzel Washington? He got game, because that was the first time, ladies and gentlemen, that I, along with my parents, finally put the stamp on Denzel as being an all-time great actor, because he proved to us that he could play a street dude. Up until that point, Denzel was able to body everything else: a, a, a police officer, a, 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 a slave, Malcolm X. But I never saw him play a rugged street dude who who captured the who captured the the swagger and aura and everything that comes with being a street dude. When I saw he got game with my parents. When it first came on cable My parents were impressed My father was like god damn He kind of acting like me a little bit there Denzel one, One of if not the coolest walk in Hollywood history Right up there with Idris Elba And Wesley Snipes They walk with swagger They walk with confidence Denzel had that street dude Down pat And he was phenomenal He got game in my opinion Was Denzel's finest performance Okay let me see now Idris Elba Man He's One of my all time favorite actors you know. And a lot of people are going to say Stringer Bell I'm going to say John Luther He portrays This um, Mentally unstable Suicidal police detective Who can get in the mind Of a killer And know why and who And where the killer did what he did Because he has a lot in common with those killers Because he will kill, if he has to, a criminal John Luther Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if you have not seen the series Luther Now Netflix has just come out with Luther, the first movie, The Fallen Son The entire series is on Pluto and Hulu And the movie's on Netflix Highly recommended. It's Idris Elba, in my opinion,'s finest role. Just tremendous. I always call John Luth the string a bell with a badge <laughs> and a British accent. Giancarlo Esposito is next on my list, and he has had a phenomenal career. 40 years strong, because 40 years ago was the first time people saw him in trading places. We had a small scene in the prison scene where Eddie um, Murphy's character was held overnight. Just Giancarlo is a great actor. I It's like him and Jeffrey Wright. I would love to see a movie where they play brothers because these two guys are great, and these two guys could play Latin, they could play biracial, they could play black. Giancarlo was great in Breaking Bad. That's the series, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, that certified his legacy and made him a legend. But the movie that I loved him in the the most in to me was his finest performance, was was fresh. He played the drug lord Esteban. With the charisma of a uh, of a drug lord, and this was filmed early nineties New York City, Brownsville, Bushwick, Bedstuy sections of Brooklyn. And Esteban played. I'm not sure if he was Dominican or Puerto Rican, the character he was playing, but he played that type of charismatic, cool, but will-kill-you-in-a-heartbeat drug lord to a T. He was phenomenal, and it's probably why he was able to play Gustavo Fring so well years later as the uh, drug lord who, as a front, was an upstanding businessman in Albuquerque, New Mexico, or was it, uh, whatever town it was in New Mexico, Now, if, if I gave the wrong town, I apologize, Breaking Bad in my holy uh, trinity of television series along with The Wire and The Sopranos, a phenomenal, uh, actor is Giancarlo Esposito, and I believe his finest performance was as the drug lord Esteban in Fresh. All right, how many actors I have left in this? Uh, My favorite actor of all time is Lawrence Fishburne. Larry Fishburne, as I still call him, because when I was a kid, he was a kid. Larry Fishburne has had a tremendous career, a phenomenal career. One classic after another. But in my opinion, his finest performance was as the undercover cop in deep cover who got so deep into cover that he began to love the lifestyle of a drug lord him and Jeff Goldblum showed a lot of chemistry in that movie together They were, in my opinion that was Jeff Goldblum's finest performance because he wasn't playing a lily white dude he was playing this lawyer who became ruthless like Larry Fishburne's character John it, this movie now I had to block Idiot on Twitter because he tried to tell me that Omar Epps in Into Deep blew away Larry Fishburne in Deep Cover. Get the fuck out of it. If you're listening, anybody listening to this program thinks that Omar Epps, A, is a better actor than Larry Fishburne, and B, did a better job as an undercover uh, narcotics agent who got Into Deep and began to love the lifestyle of a drug lord better than Larry Fishburne. If you thought Omar F's performance in Into Deep was better than Larry Fishburne's performance in Deep Cover, you don't know shit about movies, stop listening to them on my podcast, unfollow me on Twitter. And do not come at me on Twitter, because I will block your ass. That is a fucking asinine, asinine way of thinking. Asinine logic. Larry Fishburne played that role to a motherfucking T He was phenomenal And it's one of my all time favorite movies Of the 90's My favorite movie of the crack era And in my opinion Larry Fishburne's finest performance In a historic career Omar Epps is not a pimple On Larry Fishburne's ass And I'm a huge fan of Omar Epps Thank you again Skees. Great fucking question Great question as always His questions are always phenomenal All right, LL School K, quick question. He asked, so April 29th is supposed to be the date for the fight between Fury and Usyk. No reach, no uh, Fury wants no rematch clause, 70-30 split. This sounds like a man with nervous energy. I don't think he wants to really fight Usyk. Thoughts. My thought on this is that Tyson I don't know what the fuck's going on with Tyson Fury. He's not scared of Alexander Usyk. I don't believe that. Tyson Fury took Deontay Wilder's right hand, which is the most lethal weapon in boxing. He got up one, two, three, four times from that spectacular right hand and won two of the three fights. One was a draw and knocked out uh, Wilder in the other two fights. If you go through a hell like that, why would you be afraid of a guy that you're much bigger than? Yes, Yusick is a master boxer, but he doesn't pose the same type of threat that Deontay Wilder did. I don't know what's going on in Tyson Fury's head. I can't answer this question. I don't know what's going on. They need to stop with the bullshit and get this fight signed because back in January, ESPN... On Max Kellerman's Max Unboxing, ESPN, both Mike Coppinger and Mark Kriegel claimed this fight was a done deal back in January. We're coming towards the end of March. Still, no date, no signed contract. So let's stop with the bullshit, all right? Now, from my friend down under, Long Tran, he asked, what is my take on how the Klitschko brothers dominated the heavyweight division? How come the brothers became almost unbeatable and unwatchable? It was the worst era in the history of heavyweight boxing. The two th- of the 2000s? After Lennox Lewis retired in 2004, until Tyson Fury beat Vladimir Klitschko, that division was horrible. You had a bunch of old bums like Haseen Rock. Well, Haseen Rockman was a bum. He was former undisputed the speed heavyweight champion in the world, but... You- You had guys way past their prime, like a Haseen Rockman, fighting in the division. A Sam Peter, who was a one-dimensional brawler, who who, uh, knocked down Vitaly three times in their first fight. Okay. You had all uh, these—it was just a horrible—Eddie Chambers punching Judy hitter. No, you had all these cab drivers from, from from Europe and East Eastern Europe? No. It was a horrible time in heavy the worst era in heavyweight division. That's why the Klitschko brothers who weren't gonna fight each other because their brothers were able to feast on inferior opposition. That's that's the re- and the reason it became unwatchable is they they fought safe. They didn't take any chances because the only way they could have lost was if they tried To step it up so they stood outside They used their height and their reach and their jab And Either jab and Punish their opposition Into submission or won by lopsided Decisions but It wasn't until the Tyson Furies and Anthony Joshuas and Deontay Wilders Came of age That what these guys left And the division has had A lot of great actions uh, Fights in the last Seven to eight years All right, so once again, a great question, um, Long Tran. Next question is from Jesus Salas. He asked, what happened to Jimmy Young after he beat George Foreman in March of 1977? And ladies and gentlemen, we're now in the 46th anniversary of that fight, as that fight occurred March 17th, 1977 in San Juan, Puerto Rico. What do you ex- what did you expect from Foreman When he returned to boxing Alright so two questions What happened to Jimmy Young Well Jimmy Young after George Foreman going into this fight Was the number one contender For Muhammad Ali's Undisputed heavyweight title A win over Jimmy Young Would have gotten Foreman finally That much anticipated rematch That he was seeking After losing to Ali In October of 1974 Jimmy Young beat him George Foreman collapsed in the dressing room and you've got the George Foreman biopic coming out where they're going to show the scene where he thought he saw Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ told him he must quit boxing and live his life for the Lord. And afterwards, George Foreman became an ordained minister and for 10 years preached the word in the city of Houston. Jimmy Young became the number two contender. Ken Norton moved up to number one. And they fought each other in November of 1977 in a 15 round title eliminator, the winner to fight Muhammad Ali. In a great fight, a great fight, a 15 round war. Ken Norton won a split decision. I think I had Jimmy Young winning that fight. My father had Jimmy Young winning in that fight. I watched that fight with my father and my three siblings. The night it occurred, November 1977, it was on ABC's Wide Realm of Spunts with Howard Cosell, Jimmy Young. Look at Jimmy Young. Jimmy Young, a master boxer, a very hard man to hit. Ken Norton, Ken Norton feces on boxers like a Muhammad Ali. I'll... Ken Norton and Jimmy Young gave Ali hell in their fights. Well, now, they fight each other. Ah, and Jimmy Young is hurt. Jimmy Young. Uh, Jimmy Young comes back. Tremendous fight. And I was there at ringside November 1977. After Jimmy Young lost what many thought was a disputed decision to Ken Norton, his career spiral out of control. Hey Seuss, you're a Puerto Rican. Jimmy Young would lose two consecutive fights there very soon after losing to Jimmy Young to Asia Casio, black Puerto Rican, who would later on become a cruiserweight champion. And then he'd lose to Jerry Cooney and Michael Dokes, and he just became an opponent until finally retiring at the age of 41 in 1990 and dying way too young in 2005 at the age of 56, 57. So that's what happened to Jimmy Young, big man. As far as George Foreman, when he came back, I remember reading in the boxing magazines, oh, uh, K.O. Boxing, They did an article and they asked George Foreman, why are you making this comeback? George Foreman, this will be shown in the movie, wanted to help stem the crime wave in Houston. Houston had become one of those towns where crack had taken over and the gangs were fighting over turf war, over turf. They were warring over turf and George Foreman wanted to build a community center to try and have these kids occupied during the day instead of being out in the street where they were susceptible to being recruited by these drug gangs. He couldn't come up with the funding as a minister in his church, so he knew the easiest way to make money was to make a comeback. So I thought this was just him making enough money to build that community center, but then he began to love boxing again. And instead of something that he did out of necessity, he began to do it out of fun. So at first, I didn't take it seriously. I thought he was going to get a few fights, make some money, and then retire again. No. After he destroyed Jerry Cooney and he gave Evander Holyfield hell, he proved that even at 42, 43, 44, and 45 when he regained the title by knocking out Michael Mora in a spectacular come-from-behind knockout winning in the 10th round, george foreman further cemented his legacy and proved me wrong i thought it was just a cup of coffee no he went on to solidify his legacy and i am looking forward to that movie coming out because the actor that plays george foreman chris davis from what i saw in the previews has totally bodied that role okay next question let's see who's the next question L. O. K says his box his boxing route r- r- Mount Rushmore is Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Leonard, Alexander Usyk, and Lennox Lewis. What's mine? Well, I'm not going to mention that because I'm not going to answer this question because you're coming to, and I don't do Mount Rushmore all the time. I do Mount Rushmore of the of my lifetime of when I've been watching boxing since 1977, you're getting to my first member of my Mount Rushmore today. Marvin Hagler is on my Mount Rushmore. Who are the other three? Stay tuned. Each episode, each show as we do three, two and one, and then you'll get the complete answer to this question. But partial, partial answer The first member, you'll hear his uh, historical overview that I read today in Marvelous Marvin Hagler. Okay, and LL School K has one final question. Um, Should Gabriel Rosado get paid for the inconvenience? Now, I, I started the program recapping... Masito Hesta's victory over Jojo Diaz. That was supposed to be the semifinal. The original main event was supposed to be Gilberto Zerdo Ramirez versus Gabriel Rosado. Well, unfortunately, Ramirez showed up at the weigh-in 12 pounds overweight. And so the fight was canceled. Should Rosado get paid? I mean, they didn't fight. So he should get compensated somewhat, but not a full fight salary. They didn't fight despite the fact that it wasn't his fault. He should be paid expenses. He should be paid, you know, his his cost to travel, um, hotel room that was booked for his camp the whole nine. He should be compensated for that. But as far as what, what he was entitled to that night, they never stepped in the ring, and they didn't get him a replacement opponent. So, no, I don't believe he should get his full salary, but he should get... Uh, expenses paid, and um, so that's the answer to that question. Okay, now this this uh, this brother, fellow South Bronx native, he went to high school with my brother Charlie. BX Mango asked, was was talking about back in the day when he used to see Hector Camacho in his Lamborghini, and I asked him, did you ever hear the story of when me and my father met Hector Camacho? right outside his Lamborghini and he said no so this is for my brother BX Mango uh South Bronx native and graduate of the high school from the South Bronx Samuel Gompers High School This was let me make sure I got the date right June 13th 1986 my father took me for my high school graduation as of my high school graduation gift to see the incredible fight between Hector Camacho and Edwin Rosario the battle of Puerto Ricans in Madison Square Garden that was Friday night June 13th Friday the 13th well 10 days earlier June 3rd so it was a it was a Wednesday June 3rd my father took me to this tailor in the in Spanish Harlem so he can uh, rent my tuxedo for my prom. That would happen two days later on June 5th. And I have a huge prom story that I've talked about on other podcasts. Now I'm not going to mention it here, but it was one of the greatest nights of my teenage life. Anyway, June 3rd, it was the afternoon. It was a sunny day. And after we get the tuxedo, my father drives by and he sees this beautiful Lamborghini. And, He pulls next to it. And when he pulls next to it, he sees a couple of dudes in the car, in the back seat, right? The front seat's open. And he asks the dudes in the back seat, hey, man, how the fuck y'all afford this Lamborghini? And they're like, man, shut up, man. Mind your fucking business. While they're telling my father to mind his fucking business, who do we see coming out this tenement but Hector Camacho? This was... Hunt Sixteenth, Street in Lexington Avenue. Coming out, this tenant was tenement was Hector Camacho, and my father got out the car and ran up towards Camacho. Was like Hector, Hector, y'all look, my son, he's about to graduate from high school. We got tickets to see you fight next week against Edwin Rosario. Can you give my father, uh, my 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 son, can you give him an autograph? I get a piece. I I got a pen and paper and. Kamata was like, eh, little, little man, leave me the fuck alone. Leave me the fuck alone. I, I'm I'm not here for none of that shit, man. Get the fuck out of my face. Leave me the fuck alone. And my father was like, come on, Hector, man, I know a lot of people you know. We we you know, come on, man. Yo, we both equal. We both bought equal. Come on. Do my father give my son this Hector was like, Look, please, leave me the fuck alone, man. Leave me the fuck alone. I don't want to be fucking leave me the fuck alone, right? And then, then my father goes. But Hector I know super when my father said he knew super Hector's eyes got wide like coasters just wide and pushed my father out the way ran into the car into his Lamborghini and drove off like a bat out of hell and so my father gets back in the car and I was like I asked the question pop who the fuck is super and my father's like the uh, super is the guy that runs all these drug corners around here. He controls their heroin and coke I found out later on that super was one of What's this dude's name? Uh, he died recently He was murdered in Harlem while sitting in his car at 3 o'clock in, in the morning He was the one who killed Rich Porter. What the fuck was Alpo Alpo Martinez? He worked for Alpo so that's the story BX and so now On to my historical overview of Marvelous Marvin Hagler By the way, I was wrong Hagler didn't die a year ago, time flies Hagler died two years ago And I am recording this episode almost two years to the day that he died He died March 13th, 2021 I'm recording this on March 19th, 2023 Which is... The first anniversary of my son who died tragically at the age of 29 on this same date last year. So today, I'm about to read my fourth greatest fighter of the last 45 years. And that is the one and only Marvelous Marvin Hagler. And as I wrote, Marvelous Marvin Hagler was a dominant, no-nonsense, hard-nosed fighter in the last golden age of boxing. He was one of the most complete fighters in boxing history He had one of the greatest right jabs and a granite chin He was, in my opinion, the greatest softball in the history of boxing All these attributes also made him, in my opinion, not only the second greatest middleweight of all time But the fourth greatest fighter of the last 45 years Hagler began his career in the same town as the legendary Rocky Marciano, Brockton, Massachusetts. It was there that as an adolescent, he was discovered by the Petronelli brothers, Pat and Tony. The Petronellis would guide Hagler for his entire career. After a successful amateur career, highlighted by winning the 1973 middleweight national AAU title, Hagler turned pro. From the very beginning of his pro career, anyone who saw him fight knew he was going to be something special. Despite being the most gifted young American middleweight prospect in several years, Hagler was forced to fight in obscurity. After defeating the 1972 Olympic gold medalist Sugar Ray Seals in Hagler's backyard of Boston on August 30th, 1974, Hagler was forced to face other middleweight prospects and contenders on their home turf. That resulted in a few questionable decisions that temporarily curtailed his climb to the top. Three months later, he traveled to Seattle and was robbed for the first time, a controversial draw in the rematch against Seals. Then in early 1976, he lost two very razor-thin decisions in Philadelphia against Philly fighters Bobby Watts and Willie Monroe. Those losses forced Hagler to go back to square one. He never looked back. After his second loss in early 1976, Hagler went on a crusade, fighting every top middleweight contender. He knocked out Monroe in two rematches and defeated two of the most popular Philadelphia middleweights of all time, Benny Benny Briscoe and Cyclone Hart. He destroyed Roy Roy Jones' father, Roy Sr., in three rounds. By the winter of 1977, Hagler was the number one contender for the middleweight title. It would take him two more years to finally get his overdue shot at the title. At the age of 25 and already one of the five greatest active fighters in boxing, Hagler received his first title opportunity on November 30th, 1979 against Brooklyn Brawler Vito Anafermo. Anaferma was a brawler who bled if he sneezed. He was tailor-made for Hagler. Hagler was a boxer puncher who adapted to your style. If you were a mover, he attacked. If you were a slugger or a brawler, he'd move and use his outstanding right jab and left cross to dominate to dominate you from the outside. For the first eight rounds, Hagler put on a boxing clinic, blooding at Anaferma from the outside and landing on landing at will. Unbeknownst to everyone that night, Hagler abandoned boxing from the outside. For the remainder of the 15-round fight, Hagler slugged it out with with Anafermo, allowing Anafermo to outland and out-hustle Hagler throughout the final five rounds. Despite this, I felt Hagler had done enough to win the decision as he easily won the first eight rounds. Unfortunately, Hagler was robbed again as the fight was declared a draw and Anafermo escaped with his title. Instead of giving Hagler an immediate rematch, A few months later, Antifermo was robbed himself, losing his title to British contender Alan Minter. Minter bludgeoned Antifermo in a rematch and then defended against Hagler in London. Once again, Hagler had to travel to his opponent's backyard. This time, he wouldn't be denied. On September 27, 1980, Hagler traveled to London to fight fight Minter for the middleweight title. Minter was a fellow softball. It was rare back then that two softballs would face each other in a world title fight. The crowd was vociferous that night, but it didn't affect Hagler at all. He out-jabbed and out-punched Minter in the first two rounds, bloodying Minter's nose and left eye. In the third round, Hagler batted Minter with several combinations, and Minter was now bleeding profusely from both eyes. The referee wisely stopped the fight. And the British fans rioted, throwing several bottles of beers towards Hagler. The Petronelli brothers surrounded Hagler so he wouldn't get hit by any of the debris, of the debris. It was a spectacular beginning to be to what would be a spectacular reign as middleweight champion of the world. Unable to secure a mega fight with Sugar Ray Leonard due to Leonard's premature retirement in 1981. 1982 rather Hagler bided his time easily defending his title seven times over the next three years until he finally got a mega fight on November 10th, 1983 against the legendary Roberto Duran in Hagler's first seven defenses. He didn't lose a single round as he outboxed the brawlers and now the boxes against Duran. He gave him too much respect and fought one of his most passive fights. Despite his safely, f- his, Despite his safety first game plan, I thought Hagler was comfortably ahead going into the final three rounds. However, Hagler was behind by one point on two of the three scorecards going into the 14th round. Hagler fought the 14th and 15th rounds like his life were on the line. Battering Duran with several combinations to pull out a much closer than it should have been a unanimous decision. In In his next mega fight, Hagler made sure such an outcome would not be left up to someone other than himself. After two, more, after two more successful defenses, Hagler signed to fight Thomas Hearns on April fifteenth, 1985, in a fight that both men were hungry for. These were the two best fighters in the world at the time fighting each other. Readers of my column and listeners of my podcast know the admiration I have for Hearns. He was the first fighter I idolized and that I followed from the beginning of his career. Hagler had his most difficulty against tall fighters that could box, Monroe and Watts, My father and I felt that if Hearns could stay outside and control Hagler with his jab, he would either win a decision or stop Hagler on cuts, as Hagler became susceptible to cuts over both eyes as he got older. What we didn't factor in was Hagler's intense hunger and desire. While training for each and every title defense, Hagler would train inside a prison— Isolated from society He was going to make this fight a war He knew he had to knock out Hearns And not allow Hearns to stay outside and box The very first round was the greatest first round in boxing history Hearns landed a spectacular right cross Seconds into the fight Staggering Hagler momentarily Unfortunately That same right cross he landed Subsequently resulted in a broken right hand At the end of the tumultuous opening stanza, Hearns told his legendary trainer Manuel Stewart That his right hand was broken Stewart and brought Hearns to box. No man alive could beat Hagler with one hand. Hagler, a bloody mess, put Hearns to sleep in the third round. After defeating Ugandan slugger John Mugabe the following year, Hagler was finally able to lure Leonard out of retirement. On April 6, 1987, the biggest middleweight title fight in the history of boxing took place. There has never been a middleweight title before or after as big. Hagler made a few major mistakes that in hindsight cost him. He allowed the fight to be scheduled for twelve rounds when fifteen rounds would, would have suited him, as Leonard had been inactive for the past three years. The additional three rounds would have been a huge advantage for Hagler then the night of the fight, Hagler made two huge mistakes in strategy. He tried to outbox the dance Leonard and fought from an orthodox stance for the first four rounds, essentially giving them away, beginning with the fifth round. Hagler reverted back to softball in an aggressive style, dominating the rest of the fight. He staggered Leonard several times down the stretch, and after 12 rounds, the fight was up for grabs. I had the fight dead even at 114-114. Leonard won via split decision, and Hagler was angry. I always felt Hagler was to blame for this loss. Had he fought his usual softball style from the get-go, I feel he would have easily defeated Leonard, either by decision or knockout. Also, Had the fight been scheduled for 15 rounds, Leonard would have wilted under Hagler's constant pressure. Hagler was so disgusted by the loss to Leonard that he never fought again Making him one of the few legendary fighters in the history of the sport Who never attempted a comeback A la his fellow Brockton native Marciano Hagler retired with a record of 62 wins, 3 losses and 2 draws A case could be made that he was never decisively defeated in any of his 67 fights He successfully defended the middleweight title 12 times over a a 6.5 year period He ducked no one and not only is he the greatest softball in history, in my opinion, second greatest middleweight of, of, in history, but also the fourth greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Ladies and gentlemen, until next week, I want everybody to continue to be blessed and be a blessing.
0: Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed